0: Amen. Let's pray one more time together, shall we? Well, Father, we thank You so much for this day. Lord, thank You that we are able to come into Your presence with thanksgiving and with praise and to sing about the great and glorious truths that are contained in Your Word and that speak of Your glory and that fill our hearts and our minds with hope and faith and love and joy. We pray Lord that you would reveal to us Lord now as we go through your word that you would reveal to us your will for your church that you would teach us Lord a sound ecclesiology that which is pleasing to you and that which is contained in the word of God for the doctrine of the church that we may continue to grow and strive even in this local body to be a reflection to be uh Lord a representation of what we see there in Scripture, of what the church is called to do and to be. And so, Father, we pray for your help now as we think about all the glorious things that we have read here. We pray your blessing on our time, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul gives us sort of a snapshot into what is the heart behind Thessalonians, at least the passage that we read there in the book of Thessalonians. And in the book of Acts, you see something of the heart of the Apostle Paul as he's literally commending and commissioning the elders of the Ephesians, the church of Ephesus. You see that with me. If you turn there to Acts chapter 20, I want to read to you quickly some of what made the Apostle Paul's ministry so distinct, uh, what made him... uh, so motivated to strive for the unity and the, and the purity of the local church. And, it, and in this section here of Acts, it's just sheer emotion just bursting forth. It's uh, Paul really just bearing his heart uh, to the disciples. And he's filled with so many thoughts of just leaving them and, and, and commending them to the Word of God and, and, and commending a, a small church, a young church, That would no doubt face many, many, many battles and many obstacles and many dangers. And Paul, because he was a pastor, shepherd, and he cared for his flock like a father that cares for his own children, you really see that emotion coming out here. Uh, Begin looking with me at uh, Paul's uh, words here in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 22. He says, "...and now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem." Knowing what will happen to me there, uh, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that this, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is the overarching burden, mission that is the whole vision of Paul and he says and now behold i know that all of you i know that all of you among whom i went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face therefore i testify to you this day that i am innocent of the blood of all men for i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of god a lot of times that Verse 26-27 is mainly applied to evangelism in the sense of, well, if you preach the gospel faithfully, then you are free of the blood of all men. But that's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about preaching the whole counsel of God within the church. Uh, So mainly it has to do with his ministry of the Word within within the body of Christ. And he says there that be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. Remember that night and day, For a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs uh, uh, he says, You yourselves know that the, yeah, these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. The reason I read that is because you can see so many elements of Thessalonians here. You see, Paul's sacrifice. You see Paul's uh, tires, tireless commitment to the building up of the local church. You see the Apostle Paul's vision for the church, that his vision is 100% committed to the spiritual well-being of his people. You know, that's what ministry is. That's what pastoral ministry is really all about. You'll see that even here from from Thessalonians, but what you notice is that the Apostle Paul has a burden for the purity and for the well-being of the local church, and that motivated and drove him, and that dominated everything for him. Uh, that's that's what Paul was. Paul was uh, commissioned with the word of the gospel, of God's grace, and the reason why he was commissioned was to establish Biblical churches who would then perpetuate the biblical pattern of ministry that he taught them. Remember, this is Acts, Acts 20 here. This is the Apostle Paul talking to elders, commissioning them, teaching them, instructing them, leaving instructions that they should follow in the wake of his departure. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, it says, These things that you have heard from me, commit these things to other faithful men that will in turn uh, 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 do the same thing. So in other words, and commit them to others. In other words, this is a, this is a cycle, a pattern. This is a perpetual um, discipleship program that really the Apostle Paul expected everybody to do. But what What for? What for? It's for the purity of the local church we said that. Now turn to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2. I just want you to see, I want you to see that everywhere and in every place, as Paul says, uh, the Apostle Paul had the same vision for every church. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's the same. Ex- uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, pardon me. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete of being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. That's a profound, uh, profound statement and really a profound program for the local church. That this is the way that we ought to be as much as humanly possible. We ought to be in step with one another. We ought to have this unity, this harmony. We ought to have this passion for our own church to be of the same mind. And that's not always easy. <laughs> we don't have the same brain. <laughs> so sometimes it's hard to be of the same mind. But as much as possible, this is what Paul is saying, if there is any consolation, and there sure is, if there's any Fellowship of the Spirit, and there sure is. If there's any affection and compassion, and there sure is. Then make my joy complete. Paul's joy refers to his ministerial pastoral passion. And what was that? That you be of the same mind. Now look over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's utopian vision for the church He says the same thing here. Verse 11, God gave pastors, teachers, 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to to a, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You know what he's saying there? What he's saying there is that He will not rest until he produces Christ-like maturity in his people. That's the whole purpose, is to see his people grow and become spiritually mature so that you are competent in the faith. That is the entire purpose of pastoral ministry. Um, Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, please. I was just thinking of these verses right before I came up here. And these are the real prominent ones that kind of came to mind. uh, Hebrews chapter five, beginning of verse eleven. You know this concerning Melchizedek. We have much to say. Yeah, you guys remember it's like yeah. You Pastor Emilio had about a year and a half to say (laughs) about Melchizedek. So we we sympathize with the author of Hebrews here. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Raise your hand. Well, don't raise your hand. This is not Sunday school, but mentally raise your hand if you think some of the things we preach at this church are hard to explain, hard to understand. Yeah, I got some hands back there, even though I gave you pastoral instruction not to do it. (laughs) Let's be honest. Theology is not always that easy. We got, you know, Pastor Lynn and Pastor Emilio and you know Landon and other brothers, you know, teaching us to talk about biblical theology and systematic theology and exegetical theology, and we're talking about, you know, the grammar of this and that and this Greek word and that Hebrew word. It's not always easy to understand these things. You know what Hebrews is saying here? Toughen up. No sob story. Look at what he says. He says, You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. And that time is not specified, but probably there's a sufficient time that went by. This is an older church. This is not a new church. This is a bit more of an established church that is now having a heretical doctrine that is infiltrating the church and trying to undermine the purity of the new covenant. And so this pastor, whoever's writing this epistle, whether it's Paul or somebody else, which that's debated... But by this time, saying some enough time has elapsed and that, that the people of God should at some level be competent enough to teach themselves. That's incredible. That means that that's what I'm doing week in and week out. That's what Sunday school is for. That's what preaching is for. That's what men's studies for. That's what women's studies for. That's why we do what we do. It's so that you will become competent in your home, teaching your children, teaching your spouse, teaching a a, a small group, teaching a a Bible study, teaching devotions at home, family worship, whatever it is, teaching in Sunday school, teaching the children, teaching one another, as Scripture says, teaching from the pulpit, teaching outdoors through the preaching of the word of God, through the uh, evangelization of the gospel. Whatever it is, you become competent, you are able to do this, but this is a problem. If you are immature, he says, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. Now that word infant there is unlike other contexts in Scripture. Here it has a pejorative meaning. Meaning, Meaning, uh, you know, it's not a good sense. Like the Apostle Paul says in other places, in this I do not praise you. I do not praise you in this. You're not maturing fast enough. That's what he's saying. You're not growing. You're not listening. You're not taking it in. You're not studying, you know, the Word of God to a degree that you are... Precept upon precept, you are growing, 2 Peter 3.18, in the grace and in the knowledge of God. You are not growing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul ends the letter this way. He says, some of you have no knowledge, and I say that to your shame. Wow. In other words, all that pastoral ministry is, is making people theologically competent. He says... He says here solid food is for the mature. That's right. Uh, my wife and I recently went to a steakhouse and it was a wonderful steak, trust me. And Eden was asleep half the time but then she woke up. But you know it would be as much as I love her, love her to death, it would be completely wrong for me to try to share my ribeye with her. <laughs> steak is for the mature. It'd be wrong for me to share my steak with anybody, but (laughs) now that I think about it, get your own steak. (laughs) But you know what I mean? What a contradiction. We don't give a babe in Christ a Greek New Testament and say, here, go do devotions. But at the same time, when that babe in Christ has... Past the stage of adolescence even and in beginning to go into mature adulthood, spiritually speaking, and you've been saved now for a few years and you've been walking with Christ now for 5, 10, 15 years and you need to be taught again the basic, simple oracles of God. Something went wrong. Either you are the product of bad discipleship, you are the product of bad pastoral ministry, you're the product of bad preaching and teaching and theology. Or there's a, rebellious, there's a rebellious aversion to things like theology and doctrine. And you've developed these carnal sort of maxims in your own mind. Oh, well, that's for the theologian. That's for the pastor. My husband's into theology. Oh, my wife likes theology more than I do. I'm not really big on all, into all of that. I've heard these kinds of things. You know what I mean? And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, we don't, we don't get away with those kinds of things. All of this is behind Paul's sacrificial attitude and living in Thessalonians. That's why he does what he does. You know, if you go back there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9 and 12, this is beautiful because he gives us three things. Number one, a sacrificial example. Number two, he gives us a, pas- a, a fatherly concern. And number three, he gives us the ultimate spiritual vision that he has for the church. Think about the uh, the example that he lays down. Look at what he says. Look at verse 19. Now, we looked at all the context here from one really down to verse uh, uh, 9 here, and he's sort of repeating some of the same things. But he says, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, just like it says in Acts chapter 20, night and day is not to be a burden, uh, to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God, for you are witnesses uh, 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 that He says how, uh, and so is God. How devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behave toward you, believers. In other words, he's setting before them that example that he brought to them when he labored among them initially, and the way that he did it was absolute, totally, sacrificially. He laid his, his rights aside. Remember, look up at uh, verse 6. We didn't seek glory from man or from others. Even though at a, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Paul's saying, no, he forewent... His God-given apostolic authority for the efficacy of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel among the church to the believers so as not to hinder or impede the discipleship process, not to cause a stumbling block in front of the church. Basically, what Paul is saying is, I went to work. I punched in every day. I worked hard with my own hands so as not to be a burden on you, not to inhibit your progress in any way. I, you know, many pastors are actually in that exact season of life right now. I've been in that season where, you know, I was pastoring, I was really young, uh, not as much gray hair, and I was pastoring a very young church. Uh, only a couple people left from those days. And, uh, but at the time, church was so young Couldn't afford to be on staff. And so you work hard with your hands. And then when it comes to teach, you teach. And you study. And you do it. And you rack your brain and your body week in and week out. And, you know, that's the way that it went for a few years. And so I can totally sympathize what Paul is saying here is that, you know, in order it would have been completely wrong, and I can totally, totally identify with this. It would have been completely wrong in those initial stages of that early, you know, experience of pastoral ministry for me to right off the bat say, hey, I want to get paid. That would have been, I think that would have caused a real bad sort of reaction like, hey, you know... (laughs) We're just getting started here. You know, that's even though I could have pulled verse after verse after verse after verse to show you that you should financially remunerate your pastors. That would have been wrong at that time. It just would not have been fitting. And Paul is in that season right now. When he was in that season, how did he respond? What was his attitude? How did he behave in that season? Cuz it's not just doing it. You can do it, but you can do it begrudgingly as Peter says, right? Not under compulsion. But voluntarily, freely, we should shepherd the flock of God. And here... The Apostle Paul sort of gives us a snapshot into his attitude in the midst of this sacrificial season in his life. And look, what does he say? He says it was all for the purpose of not burdening them so that he can proclaim the gospel to them. But then he says, as he often does in his letters, that they were witnesses and so was God. And so Paul, with total transparency now, revealing his heart and remember. He says, remember, brethren. So he is reminding them of the very things that they saw. He says how we devoutly, how uprightly, and how blamelessly we behave toward you, believers. So those three words very important. You know why those words are important. Here's why: is because the first word that he uses, devoutly, very important because this this Greek word here is actually the language of personal devotion to God. It's the only place it's used. It's right here. But in out in the New, that's in the, in the Greek New Testament this is the only place that that word actually is found and outside of the Bible it's found in other contexts to speak of religious devotion so what it means as FF F. Bruce said is that this speaks of Paul's God word trajectory in his own personal piety it was a God word aspect to his ministry and this is it what he's saying is that first of all he was a devout man first of all the most important thing in the Apostle Paul's life was personal devotion to God. In other words, he had a a pious communion with God on a personal level. He sustained personal devotion to the Lord. And he says also how uprightly, now that language of uprightness is actually now moving from a vertical plane to a horizontal plane. Now he's saying it's not just that we had a vertical communion with God, but we also had a a horizontal righteousness before man. And so he's sort of laying out right his integrity and his reputation, and these are the things that they themselves were able to testify about. They knew and they saw Paul's conduct. Therefore, he says, how blamelessly. Now, Don't mistake the word blameless for sinless. Okay, Blameless just means that overall his conduct was free from blame. There was no charge. And especially, look look at the context, remember? You go up to verse uh, 3. He kind of dealt with the same idea there. He says, For our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. And so he didn't have these false motives, he didn't have this fraudulent lifestyle, but in fact he was blameless in the way that he ministered to this church. But it didn't stop there. It wasn't just this sacrificial example that the Apostle Paul had, he had, even above that, he also had a fatherly concern. Look at verse 11. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father uh, would his own children. Now what's amazing here is that there are three participles here. Uh, the word exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. These, At least that's a translation here in the NASB. And all of them modify Paul's fatherly concern for the church you know what a spiritual father does number one he exhorts a spiritual father cares enough for the flock to admonish to confront he 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 cares enough for them to, to 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 point them to the truth But it's not just enough to point people to the truth. It's not just enough. And what's beautiful here is that these three words are literally giving us the perfect balance, the perfect blend of ingredients that you need for pastoral theology. Remember, I told you from the very outset, verses 1 through 12, this is probably one of, you know, pastors are known for, you know, making overstatements and stuff like that. So, so this is a very important passage for pastoral ministry, one of the most important texts. If you really want to know the nuts and bolts of the attitudes, the principles, the virtues, the concepts that are involved in pastoral ministry, if you do the work and dig deeply enough into this chapter, really chapter 1 and 2, but chapter 2 especially, then what you find is that the chapter 2 really just yields this incredible wealth of pastoral theology. And this is why. is because we get little statements like this. That these three participial phrases show us the perfect balance and blend of true biblical pastoral ministry. It shows us the pastor's fatherly concern for the people of God. And it begins with the willingness to give directives. But look at it. It doesn't stop there. He says also encouraging. So notice how we go from on the one hand you know the pastor is tasked with exhorting admonishing preaching teaching but there also has to be that aspect of encouragement right that greek word that just literally means to you know come alongside somebody and and to encourage them to console them to you know to provide spiritual healing as it were for their souls to be a physician of the soul that's what he's talking about here so it's almost like the pastor cannot be in a sense all law no grace and but as we'll see he also cannot be all grace devoid of law there has to be a perfect balance here he has to be willing to exhort he has to be capable to comfort and to encourage his people and then look at the last the last word here, implore. The ESV has the word charge. He has to be willing to, at the end of the day, you have to be willing to come with authority and charge the people of God. In other words, this is saying pastorally, there comes a time, because the word here uh, for implore can also mean insist. Insist. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, look at verse 15, verse I've quoted often. This is Paul giving young Pastor Titus a, well, I don't know how young he was, but probably younger like Timothy, giving Titus some principles for how to be a pastor. And this is what he says, this is a common pitfall for pastors, and therefore the Apostle Paul is keen to bring it up. And he says this, he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. When I say this is a pitfall for pastors, because, you know, pastors often suffer from sort of a, you know, from a a real uh, timidity. Uh, I think every pastor at some point has identified with Timothy, that he was timid, you know, that he was... That, that, that oftentimes he lacked that boldness and Paul had to constantly remind Timothy, Timothy, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but he's given us a spirit of power and of sound mind, right? So, 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 so in, in that sense, pastoral ministry involves this aspect of imploring and like a father. That's the point. You go back to Thessalonians. That's the point of it all is that the manner in which he did all of this was fatherlike. And just like a father in his own home has to have these uh, qualities and he has to be competent in these areas, he needs to be able to exhort the family. He needs to be able to also encourage the family. You can't just have a father walking around the, uh, the house with a dictatorial authority going around telling everybody what to do nonstop. And man, it's so easy to fall into that, right, brothers? It's so easy to just become the tyrant in your home. But you also have to have that, that capacity to shepherd a child's heart, to quote a famous book. You've got to shepherd people in the midst of giving them directives. And you also, at the end of the day, sort of reminding you, dads, that the buck stops with you. You have to, at some point, insist on what is right. When 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 all the conversations are over, when all the conversation between husband and wife are over, after you've got you're you're done talking about what you're going to do with the kids and you know what's going to happen, at some point the father has to be decisive and make a decision, and he has to lead the family, and uh, any godly family should function in that way. But notice the last thing, not just this fatherly. Concern that the Apostle Paul had towards all the believers. We can spend so much time on that. He was a father to them because he had fathered them in the faith. He gave birth to them as it were. He was their spiritual father. The last thing and the most important thing, I think, is this. Paul's spiritual vision. Verse 12. Verse 12 Is the climax of the context. Verses 1 to 12 reaches its crescendo in verse 12, right? We did this. We did not do this. We labored this way. We labored that way. We forewent this. We worked hard here. We set the gospel in front of you. We admonished you. We cared for you. I fathered you. All for what purpose? so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. So phenomenal. You know what this tells us? Is that in pastoral ministry, it is the job, it is the task of the pastor to elevate the perspective of his people until the people are able with the eye of faith to set their sight on the eternal, invisible, imperishable kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. To get you to think eternally heavenly minded. To get you to be able to with the eyes of your heart see who you really are. To get you to live under heaven as if you are beholding heaven that is what the pastor's task is all about raising and elevating the view the sight of his people so that they see these eternal realities know what else it tells us what else it tells us is this is that we did all of this and then what he doesn't say what he doesn't say is as important as what he says. What he didn't say is anything physical, temporal, carnal, materialistic, financial. He doesn't. De- he doesn't. Do- he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. You know, dwell on the surface. He's not looking the the goal of ministry. And if we're really honest, there are way too many carnal ambitions in ministry. And you know, we harp on this here because we're not like we're you know, praise God and by God's grace, you know, we're not a seeker sensitive church. We're not a prosperity church. You know, we're not looking for fame and glory. We're not looking to you know you know raise these capital you know these these fundraising whatever cap, these capital campaigns you know and tell you to build a brick wall full of money. You know whatever they do in churches that do. All that. You know, we're not looking to build a Disneyland in the parking lot. You know what I mean? That's not what we're about. We're about, uh, you know, what we talked about just in terms of the theology, the doctrine, the teaching, the knowledge of God. And it tells us or reminds us really that for the Apostle Paul, pastoral ministry is all about the spiritual well being of the people, it is all about the heart. That is what Paul cared most about everything. He cared about the heart of his people. And therefore, he says, We've done all of this so that you would walk in a manner worthy. Isn't that amazing? What is he saying there? The word worthy speaks of, it's like a term of measurement. It speaks of weight. So it's like that you would be of the same weightiness as God. So, in other words, that your life would match up with the weighty things of God, that your life would match up with the weighty things that you are hearing about God and His kingdom, about your salvation, and about the God who called you into that salvation. That's what he's saying. And this calling, of course, is the calling that begins with regeneration, it results in justification, and it prepares us for glorification. That is the calling that we're talking about. It is God's electing love that He set upon us when He called us into His marvelous kingdom by the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel when He quickened us and made us alive and produced spiritual life in our hearts Uh, This is an amazing calling. We were called into His own kingdom and glory. You know what that tells us is that there is two aspects of salvation here, which you know where I'm going with this, but there's really an already not yet component to our calling. See, here, I think mainly He's emphasizing who they are now. So there's the already aspect of their calling into salvation through regeneration, who they are in Christ, their identity Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 because there, you know, you really kind of get the full picture. Colossians chapter 1. Just stay there in Colossians 1 because we're going to emphasize both of these aspects, that there is an already component and there is a not yet component to the calling. In other words, your calling through regeneration, being born again, has aspects that are present. In other words... There are present positional realities that belong to you right now in your identity, your new identity in Christ, making you a new creation in Christ. And those things are yours positionally they are yours definitively they are yours by virtue of your union with christ and they are sure and they are secure and they are steadfast they are immovable they're like an anchor of the soul man that goes through the veil they are that the indicative is what grounds us here right who we are in christ right now presently and colossians is really magnificent uh, To point this out to us, the reason Colossians is so important is because this really is a parallel passage to Thessalonians. So Thessalonians, Colossians, very similar in context in the things that he's talking about. You'll see it here, beginning in verse 9. I want to read a little bit of this, okay? Oh, by the way, if you went to Sunday school and if you didn't, shame on you because it was so good. I mean that. Um, If you didn't go to Sunday school, you missed a really amazing, amazing study. But I must say, there has never been a more flagrant occurrence of stealing my thunder than in Sunday school today. (laughs) Pastor Lynn, I was sitting there the whole time going, what am I going to (laughs) preach? Because we had so much. You know, you went to Colossians, I go to Colossians. My my turn. Can I have Colossians now? Thank you. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 9. But we'll read all the way down to 14. Look at what he says here. He says, For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, we didn't cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with all the knowledge of His will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And who is the Lord there? Well, you know, 99% of the time when the New Testament uses the word kurios, Lord, it refers to Jesus. Lord Jesus, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all power uh, according to His glorious might for the attaining of the steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, here we go, ready, who has qualified us, now presently, It's sort of like an emphatic, indicative reality. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has rescued us. Uh, Past tense. He has done this already. We are positionally rescued, in a sense, from the domain of darkness. And He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Same kingdom, guys. Uh, Same kingdom there in, in Thessalonians. The kingdom, his kingdom, and glory. And right here, the kingdom of his beloved son. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What is the kingdom? It is the kingdom of the king, of course. So every time you see kingdom in the Bible, just picture, you know, well, maybe don't make an image in your mind, but you know what I mean. Like, think of a king. Think of the king. Because there's no kingdom without the king. And if you want to understand the kingdom, big, i got a stack of books in my office, this big, on the nature of the kingdom. These theologians, these tedious 5,000 footnotes explaining what is the kingdom. <laughs> and then I listened to a lecture by Edmund Clowney that made it all so easy to understand. You ready? How do you understand the kingdom? Look at the king. That's it. That's your hermeneutical grid through which you understand the kingdom. So if you want to know something about the kingdom, look at the king. So you ask a question about the kingdom. Is the kingdom here? Well, I don't know. Is the king here? And you would have to say, well, yes, in one sense. Well, yes, in one sense, the kingdom is here. Is the kingdom of God here physically, presently, visibly? I don't know. Is the king here physically, visibly, presently? No. Is the kingdom coming? I don't know. Is the king coming? Of course the king is coming. So when you look at the king, you understand the kingdom. Amen? He says, it is the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what Paul is saying is that if you go back to Thessalonians, what he's saying is that you walk in a manner worthy of what? Of His kingdom. Of who? Of His Son Jesus Christ who has redeemed you and who has... Forgiven you of your sins. In other words, what Paul is saying here is be who you really are. Live as a redeemed, forgiven person. Be who you are. Live as you are. John Eadie, one quote. John Eadie says here, The kingdom of God is that which God sets up by His grace. And which is founded in the merit and mediation of His Son. Into which believers now by a second birth. And which reaches full and final development at the second advent. His glory is His own perfection and happiness which He confers upon His people. His own image reimpressed on the hearts of those who have been made meat. Which means... Ready in old English Elizabethan type language, who have been made meet for beholding him and enjoying fellowship with him. What is Paul saying? Live as the as as people, live as believers who have been made meet, ready to behold him and to enjoy eternal fellowship with him. That is what the gospel is made to produce in us. It is made to make us people who are being readied for the kingdom. People who are being readied for the kingdom live in a certain way now, presently, here in this world, by our conformity to the gospel of God's grace. Let's go to the deepest level the word doxon, glory. See that? He has called you into His own kingdom and glory. I'm going to say here two realities that are inseparable. Not the same thing. So in other words, like grammatically, you could not translate this Greek phrase as His glorious kingdom. No. Because they are separated by a chi. And. So the author is saying... Paul is saying that you have been called principally to his kingdom. So you identify yourself as a citizen of heaven. You, you, you realize who you are in association with the kingdom of God, that you are, you know, in, in in communion with the God of the kingdom. But at the same time, he has called you ultimately, finally. This is like, this is like Paul going to the deepest level into And there's no other way to say it. There's no deeper way of saying it. If you think there is, come and talk to me afterwards. Because there's no deeper word. There is no more profound word that we can come up with to really explain what has transpired in our salvation, but that we are called into His glory. That's the deepest level. What is the glory of God? Well, like Edie says, it is the perfections and, and and it is the happiness of God which he confers upon his people. That's right. That's exactly what the glory is. The glory is God's absolute eternal perfections. His 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 the outstreaming of his beauty and his glory for all eternity, for his own personal enjoyment, uh, his own exaltation. I don't know what to say. His glory. <laughs> and we have been called into that glory. See what I mean by pastoral ministry is primarily dealing with the spiritual well-being of the people. And understand that administration is important. I understand that buildings are important. I understand paying the bills are important. I understand paying the staff. I understand having programs and, you know, having organized things and technology and and all of that. I understand that's all important. Those are legitimate ministries in the local church. But above everything, pastoral ministry is concerned with the heart. I mean, this is exactly what God said when He chose the king of the kingdom. Remember? He says... Don't look at his outward appearance. because God does not look at the outside. God does not see as man sees. It says, God sees the heart. God, as a matter of fact, the text says, God looks at the heart. In other words, what Paul is, or what Samuel is saying there is, is that God is most concerned about the hard work of his people, so that you can have all of these external factors in your life. You can be a part of this. You can fellowship with this person. You can have this gift. You can give this amount of money. You can participate in this function. You can have this kind of family. You can have this kind of children. You can have this kind of situation. You can have this kind of income. You can have this kind of house. You can have this type of job. You can have this kind of vehicle. You can have this kind of culture. But God looks at the heart. In all of those circumstances. And what do we have today? What do we have today in evangelicalism? I was just talking to a few brothers about this before. We have pastors who are just fixated on culture. Fixated on the social gospel. Fixated on the member and his participation in the culture. (laughs) Okay, fine. If I change some of your political perspectives, I guess, good in some ways. But I want to know how's your heart doing? I care how you vote if your heart is fraudulent. So my duty is to constantly, like an x ray machine, come here and and, and survey the heart of God's people and try to penetrate through all of the surface and through all the walls that are built up in this place and to try to penetrate those walls with the Word of God and with the power of His Spirit applying the Word of God, that's what's valuable here. And I have a great suspicion that if we do that, God will take care of the rest. I don't got to stay up all night thinking about what's the church going to do with bills and blah, 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 blah. I don't care. <laughs> I just take care of the heart. I just preach to the heart. I just preach the Word of God. I beg God by His Spirit to apply His Word if He merciful, if He is well-pleased to do it, if, if it pleases and glorifies Him to do it, then I pray that He would do it with greater and greater degree and intensity in your lives, and I know that everything else will take care of itself. I'm a crummy administrator, by the way. I'm glad that's not my main job. <laughs> Russell's like, oh, yeah it's so true I guess one question that remains is what we talked about in Sunday school what is a worthy walk what is a worthy walk turn with me to, in your Bibles two other places I'm, just gonna, I'm not preaching for a while after this so I'm just going to hold you up a little bit without apology so turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and just a couple more texts to show you Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, I suppose verse 12 is a good place to talk about the fact that the Thessalonians did what the Philippians, or he, Paul was asking the Thessalonians to do what he asked the Philippians to do, the same thing, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but notice the balance here, notice the balance, it doesn't have to do like Pastor Lynn rightly pointed out in Sunday school, it doesn't have to do with perfection, if you're striving for perfection, you'll never get there, sorry. And the minute you get there, I'll stomp on your foot and you'll no longer be there. <laughs> Promise you. <clears throat> it, it, it boils down to a consistent, comprehensive, and persistent walk with God. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. You see, that's don't, don't, don't just kind of brush over that. That's Paul saying in a way that the Philippians were not man-pleasers, right? Not just in my presence only. It's just not when Paul, oh, here comes Paul, straighten up. You know what I mean? Oh, here comes Paul, get the kids together, hurry up. No, 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 no. Who cares about Paul when you're trying to obey God? He says, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The operative word there is out, right? Right? Uh, That's a very, very important word because if you just change that little word, work out, and if you put work for, you're a heretic. He doesn't say work for your salvation. That's heresy. That would violate what he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. No, no, no. Don't work for your salvation. You have that. Work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. I had a brother who was trying to talk to me about a theological journal that he was reading talking about the Lutheran view of sanctification and the law and he was telling me that the right perspective is not to view the imperatives of the New Testament as a new law because then we become legalistic. I said, okay, uh, fine. Is there fear and trembling with this journal that you're reading, right? A seminary professor that wrote that. Is there fear and trembling the way that Paul describes? See, I don't care what view of sanctification, well, I do, but, you know, despite what view of sanctification you may take or you may be persuaded, you know, maybe a little bit more on the Lutheran side, maybe you're more on the conservative reform side, you know, maybe some people are accusing you of a little couple, some anti-Nomian elements, maybe some people are confused, you know, accusing you of having some legalistic elements. My question is this, you better look something like Paul. You'd better be able to say to yourself and about your theology that it involves fear and trembling and the outworking of your salvation. And of course, fear and trembling immediately paint a picture of ourselves. And there we are, shaking in the corner, fear and trembling because we are so unholy. And as Pastor Lynn so marvelously taught today, God is so holy. And verse 13 is critical because it brings in the necessary balance to our progressive sanctification. Because he says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. This is no different than what he he taught in Thessalonica. Look at chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is how Paul ends it all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you're looking, because this is an important one, this is a big one. Beginning in verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we agonize about? Isn't that what plagues us? We lack entire sanctification. Just one little sinful area in our lives is enough to just make our whole day (laughs) unravel. We need entire sanctification. We say, Oh God, sanctify me entirely. But he does not mean that he will do this now. He says, May your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's amazing about that? Is that phrase there, without blame? It's the it, it, you know when Paul said earlier in Thessalonians, where he said he behaved blamelessly among you believers? Same word. Same word. And guess what? That word is only found in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And he's using it again to speak of our eschatological blamelessness before God at the coming of Christ. He says, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you. Remember Philippians? Work out your salvation. It's God who wills and does. Faithful is He who calls you and He will also bring it to pass. Rest while you tremble. Be assured. Have peace in your heart while you fear. Because it is God who has made these marvelous promises to us that in the context of our sanctification that, that is so warlike, what keeps us grounded, of course, is the monergistic reality that God will bring into pass. I've got news for you, brothers and sisters. You will not glorify yourself. Glorification is like election. It is a monergistic act of God. He is the one who will make you glorious in that day it's not ourselves father it's so easy to talk about walking in a worthy way living a worthy life these are just words but but you require that all these words and all this theology that, it, that the rubber of theology meet the road of life. And when it does, may it produce in us, as Paul talks about, a steadfastness, a perseverance. May it produce in us a hope, a worthy walk. We thank you for calling us We thank You that You were so merciful in calling us, oh God. When the Bible talks about calling, the first thing we should respond with is thanking. Because none of us deserve to be called. You called us by Your grace and for Your glory and for no other reason but that it will result in the glory of Your name and your praise, and your grace. Thank you, God. I pray, God, that you continue to mature us as a church. We're all very young in the faith. We all have so far to go, and I know that 50 years from today, many of us will, by your grace, if we're still alive, we'll look back over a lifetime of Christian life, and we'll think to ourselves, I have so far to go. And it will remind us that the unattainable standard to which we are called the perfect obedience that you demand you will give us by your grace in Christ and perfect us on the day of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray God. Amen.